does God still speak? You know, in the Old Testament, he, he, he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. He spoke to the prophets. Sometimes you'll hear folks say, God told me to do so-and-so. What, what does that mean, though? God told me. How does God speak? Usually when we say God told me, what we mean is we felt directed by the Holy Spirit. I do believe that God speaks. I think it's very rare that he would speak in an audible voice to any one of us. Uh, it's never happened to me. It's probably not ever going to happen to me. I'll, I'll never limit God by saying he can't do something. But I think the way that God speaks to us is exactly what Richard was describing. He speaks to us through what we call his word. It's called his word on purpose. That's how he speaks. The conversation that we have with God is a two-way conversation. We speak to him through prayer, and he speaks to us through his word. So that can happen in a variety of ways. Um, <clears throat> you know, on Sunday morning when you go and you go to worship, um, hopefully somebody is preaching the word. Paul told Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. And so uh, attending worship uh, gives us an opportunity to hear from God if God's word is what's being preached. In a similar way, we have Bible studies like this tonight, and we're going to look at the Bible, and God will speak to us through the Bible. Uh, you have uh, small group opportunities, your own personal devotional times, uh, even podcasts. Those, if, if it's from God's Word, then he, that's how He speaks to us. Uh, again, I'm not going to say He won't do other ways, but I, I don't think He does very often, and I think this is His this is the way that he primarily speaks through his word. And so as we talk about uh, the doctrines that are at the heart of our faith, uh, we've, we've called it core Christianity. What, is, what are those doctrines that are at the very core of what we believe? We have to include the Bible. We have to understand its, its role and its purpose um, and and so much of everything else we talk about uh, is, is dependent upon our understanding of Scripture. And so uh, tonight, that's what I want us to do. I want us to talk about the role of Scripture as, uh, as it relates to these core doctrines. But let's begin at that familiar passage in 2 Timothy 3. We'll start at verse 14. Paul is actually preparing Timothy for the last days, to be honest. He, uh, he says, you know, when, when the last days come, things are going to get pretty crazy and uh, folks are, are not going to, um, they're not going to listen to God. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to care about the truth. They're not going to live godly lives. And in that context, he says in verse 14, but as for you. So he's laid out what it's going to be like for others in the last days. But for you, in 14, continue in what you have learned 
and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred readings. Now remember, Paul is speaking to an individual. This is a letter specifically to Timothy. Most of the other letters are to churches, but First and Second Timothy are to an individual. And he knows Timothy's background. Timothy was raised by his mother and grandmother. And uh, both of them were godly women who taught him the scriptures as he was growing up. And so Paul says to Timothy, you know, from your childhood, as you were growing up, you were acquainted with the sacred writings. Mom and grandma taught you that stuff. Continuing then in verse 15, he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures show us how we find salvation in Jesus. And then verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we see what the scripture does. It's, uh, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. We've talked about this uh, quite a few times. That teaching, it says, here's the path you want to be on. Reproof says, hey, you got off the path. Correction says, here's how you get back on the path. And training in righteousness, this is how you stay on the path. And so the Bible provides those for us, teaching, reproof, correction, and training. Um, and so we see what the, what the Bible provides for us. But we also see the source of Scripture, um, the authority behind it, because it says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. What we have as the what we call the Bible, uh, <clears throat> 66 books written by a number of different people um, throughout a very long stretch of time. Um, and the authors of the Bible came from different walks of life, again, in, in different eras, uh, different regions, different perspectives, different professions, um, and so how then do we say that this is God's word? Well, starting in the second century and reaching to the latter part of the fourth century, um, these various books were compiled and they had, they had big councils where folks would sit down and read, uh, different books and letters that had been circulating for uh, for those hundreds of years, a few hundred years, um, and these councils agreed that this would be what we call the canon, the collection of those books that we believe are God-inspired. There are other books that were written at this same time um, that the church does not recognize as God-inspired. They're historically helpful, um, they give us good perspective on 
the, the, the way of life and the thinking of the day, but these are the ones that we believe were God-breathed, inspired by him. That's why we say these are his words. A, a man used his hand to put the ink on the paper. And from uh, the way he knew what to put on the paper was a process that God used of inspiration. God would inspire an individual and then allow that individual to use his own style, his own uh, perspective, if you will, to put those God-inspired ideas into words on the paper. So what we have is God's word. It came through man, through many men, but it is his word. It is all scripture is, is breathed out by God and is good for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. So that the person of God, the reason it says man of God is because he's writing to Timothy and Timothy was a man. The person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. In other words, if we really learn what's here, we can be adequately prepared to serve the Lord and do what he calls us to do. This is what equips us. So there is the, there is the Bible's authority. Um, I think it's important for us to develop a little bit more who is the Bible's author. So uh, if you turn to the right, you'll find 2 Peter. We're in 2 Timothy now. If you keep going to the right through those little books, you'll find 2 Peter. And chapter 1. Now this, this book, is, uh, this letter is different. It's not, uh, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy were written to Timothy. 1 and 2 Peter are not written to Peter, but they're written by Peter. So the, the titles are sometimes confusing because we use it in different ways. But this is a, this is a letter written by Peter. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is talking about prophets specifically but as he's, talks, as he's talking about prophets specifically, we get a glimpse of how sending a message to God's people works. In the Old Testament, God would, say, would inspire the prophet, tell the prophet what to say. The prophet would then pass that message along to the people. And that's how it works in the rest of Scripture. When Peter was writing that, he didn't have all, all these other New Testament books yet. We do, and it works the same way. God inspired the messenger to write the words, and in so doing, then um, the messenger gets the message to God's people. That's how God reveals himself. It is, uh, the Bible then is a letter from God through others to us, and it is all directed by the Holy Spirit. 
You see that at verse 21. Uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God is the author of scriptures. And that uh, tells us that they are reliable and dependable, true. And I would even use the word inerrant. Uh, that word um, got kicked around a lot about 25, 30 years ago. Um, particularly in Baptist life, we kind of started fighting over that word. Um, one group says, you know, we're... we're better than you because we're more conservative and we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. The other group would say, well, we're better than you because uh, we believe God's Word too, but we're not going to hold everybody to the same interpretation that would be implied with the word inerrancy, and it became a thing. But I think now that uh, we're well beyond that struggle, I think we need to use that word again because the word simply means there are no errors, inerrant there are no mistakes in God's Word. So we understand the Bible's authority. We've looked at the Bible's author. Um, if we go to the middle of the Bible, we can look at the Bible's ageless truth um, in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a, is a fascinating psalm. When you get there, you'll, you'll see most likely your uh, version, uh, your edition, uh, breaks up Psalm 119 into sections of eight verses in each section. You may even see at the top of each section a strange word. That word is actually a Hebrew letter. And the reason it breaks it up like that is because Psalm 119 is fascinating. It, it, the first eight verses all start with the first Hebrew letter. The next eight verses all start with the second letter in Hebrew. The third eight verses start with the third letter in Hebrew. Uh, and so it's a fascinating poem that somebody really worked r very hard at, at writing. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And, uh, <clears throat> and it describes for us, among other things, the, uh, the ageless truth of Scripture. So in Psalm 119, we're going to start at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It's good to know that it is fixed in the heavens because everything on earth changes. Everything changes. It decays or it rusts or it evolves or... But, but this is fixed. It's not changing. And it's fixed in the heavens. So it's not tainted by our fallen nature, which is in constant turmoil. Scripture, God's word, is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law has had not been my delight... 
I would have perished in my affliction. He goes on into a time of testimony that, that describes how God's word got him through the most difficult time um, in his life. But the, the powerful part that I wanted you to see is that, that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. God's faithfulness, verse 90, endures to all generations because God is faithful his word is faithful. It is fixed in the heavens. If, uh, if you, you, look in the, uh, you look in the Old Testament, you'll find a story after Jeremiah had uh, presented uh, the scroll uh, to the king, Jehoiakim. The king didn't like what the Bible said. And so... He ripped it up and burned it. Well, back then, of course, they didn't have Bibles. This was the scroll. So he had just destroyed the Bible. So, or at least a portion of the Bible. So God says, ain't no problem. Jeremiah, let's get busy. Let's just rewrite the whole thing. And because it was God's word, he could write it all over again. It was firmly fixed in the heavens. So the king burns it up. No big deal. That's just paper. The word is ageless. The word was, was not going to be destroyed. Um, in Isaiah 40 at verse 8, we, you know, we read that uh, the, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. That's the reason that uh, Scripture is at the heart of our faith, um, and that's the reason that this is one of the core doctrines that we needed that we need to include in our study of the of core Christianity. So we look at the Bible's authority, the Bible's author, the Bible's ageless truth, and then we we really need to take a minute to look at the Bible's audience. While we are right here in Psalm 19. Uh, back up to the beginning of that psalm and look at uh, starting at verse 9. Starting at verse 9, we see, uh, we see a little bit here about the Bible's audience. In other words, who is the Bible intended for? And obviously it's intended for us. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? It's a rhetorical question. He's about to answer his own question by guarding it according to your word. How do you live this life? Well, according, by guarding it according to your word. Remember, we just saw um, over in the New Testament that God's word gives us everything we need. It's in uh, 2 Timothy, it said that, that this equips us to serve him faithfully same thing is being said here now in the Old Testament. It is your word that enables me to keep my way pure. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all, all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So through that, that passage 9 through 16, you see God's word referred to as a, in a lot of different ways. Um, he's, uh, it's referred to as the word. We see commandments. We see statutes, uh, the rules of your mouth, your testimonies, uh, your precepts, your statutes again. All of that is talking about scripture. And, and so we learn there that in that, um, in that passage, we see that the, the Bible's intended audience is us. We can learn from Scripture when we follow it and memorize it and love it. He, uh, he said that uh, the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. So we cherish it and love it, make it a part of our lives. Toward that end, um, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of, of how we're to study the word. And um, I have three words that I want to throw out at you as far as how we study the word. And the first one is purpose. Anytime you read the Bible, it is... It is not your primary goal to figure out what it means to you. That is not your primary goal. Your primary goal is to figure out what it meant to the person who wrote it. Your goal is to figure out what message is being sent. Not how do I feel about this today. What was the purpose of this passage? And that takes a little extra work. By the way, we need to remember that in our small group experiences too. We'll get together and read a verse and say, okay, what does that mean to you? Well, to be honest, it doesn't really matter what it meant to you. It matters what it meant when it was written. I've got to dig and reach and find the purpose of the scripture. Okay. So purpose is incredibly important. The other word that I, that I want to throw out there is context. It's context. You can pull any verse from scripture and assume that it's saying what you want it to say. Instead, our job is to figure out the context. What is it trying to say instead of what do I want it to say? So I do that at, certain, at levels. All right. When I look at John 3.16, to really understand John 3.16, I have to look at the whole paragraph, the whole story that Jesus is out there and Nicodemus comes to him by night. Comes by night means not that he comes at night, but it's, it means he used night as a way of travel. He was so afraid of being found. You and I would say we're going go to so, we're gonna go to Denver by airplane. 
We're going to go to Hawaii by ship. It's the way he traveled. He came by night. Incognito is a good word. Because he, he was a bigwig in Jewish life. For him to come to this troublemaker would have gotten him in trouble. So he comes asking, seeking truth. But, but this is a major ordeal for him. And Jesus says, dude, the way this happens is you got to be born again. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? How can I be born again? And Jesus enters into a whole discussion about spiritual rebirth. It is in that context. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him doesn't have to die, but you can live forever. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world that we might be saved. But not only is that in a context of a conversation, but it's in the context of the book of John. The book of John is a gospel. It is not prophecy. It is not uh, poetry. It's, it is a gospel. What is a gospel? A gospel is a book that tells the story of Jesus, that tells of his life, the events, his teaching. So if I read John 3.16, I need to understand that this is not poetic. This is actual facts of Jesus' life found in the Gospels. And I also need to understand that John's goal is to introduce the world to Jesus. By the way, Matthew's goal is to introduce Israel to their king. You see, they're, they're different. They come from different perspectives. John's goal is to introduce the world to God the Son, whom we call Jesus. If I understand the context then all of a sudden there's a whole lot more meaning to God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So it's important that we don't just pick a verse and kind of play with it and make it fit what we want to do. In, in, in theology, there's, the term is exegesis. Exegesis means to pull out of. It's, it's the word that we use to interpret it's to pull the meaning out of the scriptures. The opposite of that is a word that we call eisegesis. Eisegesis is to put into the word my meaning. And we all have to be careful about that because we all do that. We all bring our history, our hangups, our opinions, and we come to God's word with all of that baggage. We read his word through our filters. And we need to be aware that that's happening so that we can intentionally do the work of exegesis and not settle for eisegesis. Let me show you an example. Just yesterday, I heard a guy on Twitter who 
doesn't believe in seminary. He doesn't believe that we should have any formal training in um, scripture interpretation and, and religion, if you want to use that, that term. And he came into scripture with that idea that all I need is God. I don't need anybody teaching me anything. He comes to scripture with that idea and he reads Psalm 23, 23, buy truth and do not sell it. So it's wrong for colleges, universities, and seminaries to sell truth. See, it says do not sell it. They should not sell the truth. They shouldn't charge money to teach the truth. See, he came at that from his own idea first, and then he found it. And if all you ever hear is the Bible says don't sell the truth, well, you kind of think maybe that guy's got a point. But if we look at it in context, that helps us avoid eisegesis, bringing our stuff to it. And it helps us with exegesis, taking stuff from it. And we read it in its full context. Listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she's old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. You buy those things that you need. You sell stuff that you don't need anymore. Right? What he's saying is collect it. Get it. Even if you have to pay a price for it which, by the way, throws the other guy's idea out the window because he just told me to buy seminary education. But if there's nobody who can sell seminary education, how am I going to buy it, right? That's not, this has nothing to do with seminary. He wanted to make a point, and he found his point. What this is saying is buy it. You pay whatever you have to pay to find truth because it's worth it. And don't sell it. It's too valuable for you to get rid of it. You only put in the garage sale the stuff you don't want. You only donate to the church the junk that you Oh, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> buy truth. Don't sell it. You want it. You keep it. You, you pay for it because it's valuable. That's his point. See how important context is. And exegesis versus eisegesis. The third, the third word that I just have to throw out, and then I'll, I'll, we'll be done. Purpose, context, the third word is genre. Genre. Style or form, the purpose of the writing. Um, in music, genres are jazz, rock, reggae, country, Gospel. Same thing in literature. There's a, there's a style or a kind. It's G-E-N-R-E, genre. And the reason that's important is, I already touched on it earlier, you're going to interpret the Gospels differently than you're going to interpret 
Revelation. Revelation is apocalyptic. It, it is, um, uh, by definition, there are a great number of symbols in apocalyptic literature. Not in the Gospels. In the Gospels, it's reading a story of what happened. Now, the Psalms, the Psalms are technically songs. Since we don't have music, we would read them as poems. You know you don't read poetry the same way you read a story. Poetry is symbolic, and it's emotion, and it's, it's creative. So you don't read that the same way you read prose. Prophecy. Prophecy is God's revelation of himself to his people. Prophecy, by the way, is not always telling the future. There's more to prophecy. Prophecy is God revealing his plan to his people. So when we read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, we're going to read that as God revealing his plan through this prophet to his people. We're going to understand it in the context of the time in which God was speaking. Something was happening at that time that that prophecy was addressing. We're going to interpret that completely differently than we're going to interpret the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible are not prophecy. They're what we call, usually we call it history. The, the Pentateuch is uh, the word we use for those first five. And um, it's, you know, Genesis tells the story of how everything got started. Exodus tells the story of how the people left Israel. Then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're telling the story of how the people are wandering through the wilderness. And as they're telling that story, they explain to us God's laws that were given to the people while they were in the wilderness. And Numbers tells us about all the people and who they were and where they were and all that stuff. So it's history that's going to be completely different from the other genres. Does that make sense? So when, when you get serious about understanding God's word, you, you have to understand its authority, that it has the power for teaching, reproof, correction, and training. You have to understand its author. It is inspired by God. You understand its ageless truth. It doesn't change because God doesn't change. And then you have to wrestle with the audience. God is speaking to me, so it's important for me to understand the message, not to take my ideas to it, but let it speak to me. And to accomplish that, I'm going to remember the purpose of the scripture, the context of the scripture, and the genre 